Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Resilient Cyber is sponsored by Acquia, a cybersecurity service, disabled veteran-owned small business that is passionate about enabling innovation and driving secure digital transformation. Acquia believes in guardrails over roadblocks and security as a business and mission enabler. Learn more at acquia.us. That's A-Q-U-I-A dot U-S. Before we start the episode, we want to give a big thank you to our season four sponsor, Nucleus Security. Meet Nucleus, the only risk-based vulnerability management platform purpose-built for the world's most complex enterprises. Nucleus takes the mountain of vulnerability data that is produced by your security stack and unifies it into one clean dashboard that helps you make sense of your assets and vulnerabilities. With Nucleus, users get a normalized and deduplicated list of vulnerabilities across network devices, cloud, applications, and more. Next, we layer in risk and vulnerability intelligence from sources like Mondiant to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter most. Ready to see how Nucleus can help improve your vulnerability management program? Head to NucleusSec.com today. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Resilient Cyber Show. My name is Dr. Nikki Robinson. And this week, we're going to be without my co-host, Chris Hughes. Uh, but I do have another Chris here that we're going to be talking to. We're going to be chatting today with Chris Kulikowski. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So for um, for anyone that, that doesn't know you, can you give a, a brief introduction, who you are, what you do, um, and, and tell us what you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Chris Kulikowski. <clears throat> I work. Uh, I work at IBM right now. I'm. I'm a threat hunter and detection engineer. Um, my career spans uh, about twelve years, uh, spanning from uh, data loss prevention to incident response to uh, to threat hunting. Now more of into like an engineering and um, and strategic role. Um, helping provide visibility enhancements to um, to IBM. Awesome. Yeah. So can you give us um, a little bit for anyone that's not familiar with or is sort of familiar with like threat hunting and incident response, but you sort of have a background in, in both. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the differences in these areas? What interested you in, in these types of roles um, in the first place? Certainly. Yeah. So, uh, so threat hunting and incident response are they, they have some similarities, but of course, differences. Uh, the main thing is uh, one is proactive, one is more reactive. Um, proactive, uh, the threat hunting is a very proactive um, procedure or, or process. You know, you're, you're consuming intelligence, you're looking in the environment, your environment, uh, for any of these signals or, or indicators that you may have a compromise. And um, and then incident response is, of course, more reactive, right? You've you've got an indicator that you've that you're compromised, and now you're you're reacting, um, doing the investigation, doing containment, doing response, um, and it even includes sometimes um, remediation, so getting the systems back up and running and operational. 
um, they they do require different skill sets. Um, I would say both very technical roles. Uh, incident response is more on the digital forensics side, where you know you're you're doing, of course, log analysis, but you're also uh, very in tune with operating system internals and artifacts left behind from different um, different activities that can take place in the system. Uh, with hunting, you know that it's more of an art. I would say uh, each hunter is interpreting intelligence in their own way. Um, you could read a threat report that comes out on the internet, and you could um, possibly interpret some of the uh, the indicators or, or behaviors that that are observed in the threat report differently than another hunter. And you may hunt uh, slightly in, in a slightly different way than another hunter would work. And there's no wrong or right way. Um, in fact, I think that's what makes hunting uh, such a really interesting career path is uh, hunters have all different kinds of skill sets. And those those skill sets show in the work that they're doing. Someone who comes from like a networking background may have a different lens on on what they're uh, hunting for than someone who comes from maybe a, a digital forensics or a military government background. They may know more about actor TTPs. Um, with incident response, I think it's more of a methodology. Uh, you know, you're you're kind of doing a, a very um, systematic process of reviewing logs, looking at artifacts, you're trying to tell the story of what happened on that system. Whereas hunting is, is definitely not as, as systematic. Uh, it, can, it can very much be fluid depending on what, you're, um, what threat you're hunting for or, or what actor, what TTPs, et cetera. Um, so yeah, ho hopefully that helps. Uh, what interested me in these areas? Um, I don't know. It's it's kind of just how it's how my cards were dealt when I got into you know cybersecurity. Um, I I started in the digital forensics area, and so that that kind of pushed me towards incident response naturally because uh, in, in in incident response you're doing a lot of uh, digital forensics. Um, uh, black box analysis, uh, using a lot of forensic tools like FT FTK, NCASE, um, and it just kind of happened naturally. I, I enjoy it because you're looking for the needle in the haystack. Um, sometimes it can be a daunting task, but man, when you find the smoking gun, there's no better feeling. Um, it's it's just really exciting, and it kind of fuels you for that next case. With, uh, with threat hunting, Similarly, how how I enjoy incident response, just because you know you're looking for that needle in the haystack and it's very rewarding. Um, hunting is is kind of like I said, it's an art, so you can put your own spin on on what you're what you're doing essentially, um, and I enjoy that. It's not as it's not as systematic. Um, you can kind of put your own flavor into hunting. A lot of our hunters here in IBM have different skill sets. And the nice thing about that is we learn from each other. Um, we have experts in one query language where another expert may be uh, in, in a different query language, or maybe they're really good with log analysis. And we lean on each other to, you know, to help fulfill the requirement of the, the hunt at hand. Yeah, I, I love how you talked about 
the art form behind it, right? The creativity that we get to use. Because I think we talk a lot, especially about, you know, cybersecurity as these very technical roles, which they are. But I love that you added that there is sort of this art form to it, this this creative creative lens that we have to bring to it. Because without that creativity, uh, you know, we'd sort of be doing the same thing over and over again, right? And, and exactly. potentially missing things. Um, so can you talk about, uh, you know, sort of, how someone would be interested in maybe getting into whether it's threat hunting or detection engineering. Um, can you talk a little bit about career pathing, maybe where someone should start if they're interested in in moving into this field? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think that it's always good to have an IT background. I think that's kind of like a, a foundational uh, skill set that everyone in cyber should have. You need to understand networking. You need to have basic knowledge of how operating systems um, work and and traditional logging on operating systems. Uh, I think that security operations fields are uh, invaluable, uh, extremely valuable experience to have in, in these fields. That way you can kind of get an idea of what's benign versus a true attack. Um, getting hands-on experience in real compromises is is always a very good experience to have. That way you can kind of understand the the goals and intent behind an actor. Like what are they, what are they doing? What kind of things do they um, look for when they're first getting access to a system? The commands that they're running. Um, different techniques that they may leverage when when they're compromising an environment. The more experience you have with dealing with real, true incidents, I think it, it equips that person, that analyst, with having um, the ability to identify something when you're when you're looking through a ton of logs, and something quickly jumps out at you, like whoa, that's that's a little odd right there. That that command doesn't seem like it's you know, automated, doesn't seem like it's part of a script or, you know, that looks like maybe that's hands-on keyboard activity. And I think that just comes with time and experience. Yeah, I, I, I like that too, that you talk about that sort of real world experience, right? We, Chris and I have this conversation a lot with, with other guests and just with each other where we sort of, we talk about sort of the value of education certifications and real world experience, right? So ha having such a great blend of both because, the more you actually experience these things, the more that you get that sort of, you know, I call it cyber intuition, right? Where you you have this idea of when you're looking through these logs, like, hmm, that seems anomalous. That doesn't seem like that should be there. And, and I think that's a, a great point. Um, yeah. And I wanted to ask you a little bit, because we talked a little bit about the technical aspects of, of um, you know, detection engineering. And we just recently had on another detection engineer, which, um, opened my eyes too, right? Getting to hear different people's perspective in this field. Um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about the people aspect of this. And you sort of alluded to it a little bit when you're talking about, you know, whether it's TTPs or, you know, thinking about how, you know, an actor might move. But can you talk a little bit about the people versus technical aspect of um, detection engineering? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, what I'm thinking when, when you ask me this question, my first thought goes to like, a detection engineer is serving a client. Um, the client is who's ever responding to the alerts. They're they're the one who are doing the investigation. Um, so in my mind, I'm like, when I'm writing a detection, I want to make sure I am contributing as much context 
and en enriched information that that analyst, whoever's responding to it, has what they need to move forward with triage. What they what they need to know in exactly um, why this alert happened. So sometimes that's helpful in them having the the alert logic, the condition of what what satisfied the alert to begin with. Um, other times that's just having really good description of the alert, maybe in some kind of um, database where you keep track of all your rules, your rule set. Um, it could also be uh, making sure you have specific response instructions for that that rule or that use case. Um, you know, it, some of these rules fire all the time. Some of them may fire like once in a blue moon, and it's not it's not always a rule that maybe a SOC analyst is going to be familiar with. And so, ultimately, you're serving a client. The client is the person responding to those those um, alerts, and I think making sure that they're their needs are met uh, are is is number one. So that's kind of the people aspect I think of in terms of uh, detection engineering. Yeah, and I I love the the sort of the which we already talked a, a little bit about, but sort of how threat hunters, incident responders may work together, detection engineers. You know, you start working with all these other teams in you know maybe in in cybersecurity, right? Like in these other areas, but. Uh, you end up really working as a team because one person has a piece of information they might need to share with someone else and, and sort of get their input. And so it becomes this, you know, working relationship, this iterative kind of approach that we see in, I know like the cybersecurity color wheel, and I, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but like purple teaming, right? Where you have red teams that work with blue teams and, and bringing that feedback loop in. Um, and yeah. it, it feels a lot like that, right? That sort of that iterative approach, like, okay, let's keep working on this and, and building some of those protections in. Um, yeah. so to that point, can you talk a little bit about sort of the, really the value of detection engineering, you know, making a case for having detection engineers or a detection engineering, maybe even a program or a subset of a program, um, for business leaders, you know, how it, uh, what some of the benefits are and, and how it can potentially, um, maybe hopefully reduce incidents or, or find them, you know, before they become a big issue. Yeah, certainly. Um, we're all at the mercy of, in a way, at the mercy of our our vendors, whatever whatever vendor that is, you know, for um, for EDR, for um, WAF, for our email gateways. I mean, whatever the technology is, uh, it's you're highly unlikely not to have your own <laughs> these days, and so keeping up with. Uh, in, in order for the vendor to keep up with the threat uh, landscape is extremely difficult. And so I think that lending the vendor a hand, uh, not necessarily a hand, but but contributing to their rule sets on in your own way that tailor to maybe possibly your own environment. Like maybe the vendor doesn't know where your crown jewels are, where your secrets are. The only way that you could protect your own network um, as securely as possible is going to be for you to come up with specific use cases to your own environment. And the vendors are doing as, as good of a job as they can, but they're they're at a 10,000 foot view. You know, they're trying to meet the needs of all their clients um, kind of at the same, same time. And they're they're casting a really wide net in terms of what they can deploy, 
what's going to be the biggest bang for our buck in, in our rule sets. If we see half of our clients are getting impacted by this threat, then yes, we're going to deploy some kind of rule for it. But if only one client is impacted by this threat because they've got some custom application in their environment and maybe it was vulnerable, they got compromised, maybe they're not going to spend it the resources needed to write custom detections for that one client. So for any large organization, I think it's imperative to have detection engineers, um, not only for the reasons that I just mentioned of, of making sure you're covering very specific um, aspects of your environment that a vendor might not be covering, but also you could potentially beat the vendor to detections that, may come out several weeks later. Um, if you have a pretty mature Intel Hunt detection engineering program, then you can consume this Intel, um, do some attack simulation testing, see if you got coverage or not, uh, and then write the detections and get them deployed to production well before a vendor could ever do this. So that's, that's the main advantage. Really bringing it to a proactive finding things and not just proactive, but proactive and subjective, you know, very, very much, you know, what's in our environment, what do we need to look for, maybe based on uh, industry. Because um, that's one thing that I see a lot too, right, is that we don't always have industry based detection, right? So like a hospital, or a healthcare center is going to be affected differently than, you know, an academic institution that the, they're probably going to want different detection rules and looking for different uh, types of actors. Um, so I think that's a really yeah. good point. Um, well, and I wanted to ask you too, because uh, one of the things I love to ask uh, any of our guests that come on, because, you know, in, in your in your experience and in working as a detection engineer, um, I've come across some great resources, uh, specifically the detection maturity level model by Ryan Stillians, I thought was really good. Um, but do you have any resources, references, tools, anything like that for anyone that maybe is interested in getting into detection engineering or looking into it that they can sort of start with? Uh, specifics, I don't have anything specific. I would say that a lot of, uh, we learn tremendously from uh, threat intelligence sources, you know, just just your good, you know, bleeping computer, um, Mandiant, all, all the, the really good sources that come out with threat reports. Um, we, we learn from those. And oftentimes they'll come with some type of way to de detect this, maybe a Sigma rule, Yara rules, um, even if it's like pseudo logic, you know, that can kind of help you get started with writing your own detections. Um, a lot of these rule sets do translate uh, pretty easily. Sometimes they don't, and it requires a little more work to, to get it to bend to your exact technology that you've got in your environment. Um, in terms of resources online, you know, there's a lot of really good uh, GitHub uh, repos out there that individuals in our community have been contributing to queries. You know, they, they've been putting up hunting queries on GitHub. A lot of um, professionals have their own blogs uh, and, and they're posting, you know, various hunts or detections that they've worked you know, maybe they've contributed a ton of time into and they want to share it with the community and they've got it out there. Um, so we, we often do, you know, instead of starting from the from from nothing, we, we sometimes do, you know, return 
uh, refer to Google and the internet to see if maybe this, this problem has been solved before. And if it has, uh, even maybe in a little way, then that at least gives us a starting point. And then we can bend that detection or that hunt query to our specific needs. Yeah, that's great. I know there's a ton of great stuff out there. And, um, you know, even on the vulnerability management side, right, like chances are somebody, if I haven't looked at it, somebody's been looking at it, and I can at least get a good idea, a good starting place, and then, you know, build from there. So, um, yeah, so that's great. Yeah. Um, well, before I take us to our last question, I had one more question that I'm I'm interested with your experience and, in, in, you know, the, the things that you work on. What are like the top three threats, the top three biggest things that either, you know, you're worried about or you see in the industry or, you know, things that, that you know, keep you up at night, right? Like the, th the three big things that you're worried about. Yeah, I think we're going to share uh, a common theme with the first one here. Uh, misconfigurations is probably the first one. You know, these sometimes it's overlooked that, you know, you're spinning up some some new uh, application, asset, whatever it may be, infrastructure device. And, you know, you're trying to just get it out there and up so that you guys, so that the team, the development team can begin working. And security is an afterthought. It's not, it's not a forethought. And unfortunately, um, that ends up uh, biting us later. And, and even um, these misconfigurations, as sometimes they're not even at the fault of a developer, but it's kind of default stuff. And um, and there's there's some things happening right now with uh, you know with our with our government enforcing some new um, new controls around default um, default uh, credentials, default policies, applications when they're shipped from default uh, with configurations that now it's no longer acceptable to be having, you know, default credentials like admin, admin, uh, admin password, et cetera. Um, I'm going to so miss those, by the way. I'm, I'm yeah. Kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to be joking. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that's that's number one, mis misconfigurations. Um, number two, um, I would say, you know, this this is probably something that we have less control of, but... It's education of our of our user base. Um, a, a lot of times, you know, compromises will happen because someone clicked on something they shouldn't have. They went to a website, download something they shouldn't have. They thought they were downloading a tool that does one thing, but it's it's actually trojanized and it does another. Um, we've seen APTs uh, trojanizing legitimate IT tools, and and so even even like the the most technical individual who you would think would not be victim victimized by something like this, they download an SSH putty client or um, type VN, like a VNC client, and it's been trojanized, uh, unfortunately. And you know they they end up getting the environment um, compromised. So that's that's number two. And then uh, let me think. The third one that keeps me up at night. Um, I would just have to say it's it's vulnerability management and patching, you know, um, and that kind of leads that it kind of circles back to number one, 
but but I think we need to be in tune with with patching and vulnerability management as best we can. And I know that's hard for smaller organizations, um, but it, it maybe maybe just they need to reduce their attack surface. That that could be a suggestion. Um, not has not have as many uh, internet facing assets. If it doesn't need to be plugged into the internet, then then take it off. Put a put a WAF or proxy in front of it so that it's not. Uh, directly accessible, and at least there's some level of control. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, vulnerability management is definitely, it's one of the reasons why I got into, you know, cybersecurity in the first place is just seeing how challenging patch management, secure configuration, you know, all all these things are for, you know, small to large organizations. Um, It can be really challenging. And I think part of that is just how complex our infrastructure is now. You know, a lot of places have hybrid environments where they have cloud and still have some on-prem or they're in the middle of IT migrations or something like that. And so they're in the middle of, you know, moving, but they have to support multiple levels of OS while they're in the middle of those upgrades. And it just makes it incredibly challenging. Um, yeah. So that was, yeah, same same thing. That keeps me up too. Um, so that'll take us to our last question. Um, and, and, you know, whatever spin you want to take on it, whether it's from, you know, your experience as a detection engineer, incident response, but... Uh, what does cyber resiliency mean to you? Yeah, well, uh, when I think of resilient, I, I'm, I'm thinking of like future-proofing something. Um, and, and in terms of engineering, detection engineering, we often do this in our rule sets. We're trying to think of like, let's let's develop a rule or condition that is going to meet maybe um, a threat that we haven't seen before, you know? So... Um, and, and and not to get into the weeds here, but a lot of rule sets maybe are uh, regular expressions, and so um, making the expression as wide as possible, uh, without introducing maybe some benign hits. Like so, there's a sweet spot here. It's a balancing act, um, but that that's what I think of uh, resiliency, uh, or at least, at least resilient detections. Um, and then resiliency, cyber resiliency itself, I'm thinking of like, how do we bounce back um, as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible uh, from, from a, an attack or a compromise, um, whereas we, the environment is more secure than it was prior. And that's, yeah. that's, where, I, that's where my head goes. Yeah, perfect answer. Thank you. Um, well, I, I wanted to say a huge thank you, Chris, for for joining me today. We talked about all things detection engineering, threat hunting, incident response, uh, tooling, and rules. So um, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, that's going to take us out for this week. Uh, thanks for everybody for joining, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me.